Welcome to The Buzz, I'm Christopher Conover. This week, the nation paused to celebrate Veterans Day. On this episode of The Buzz, we take time to explore veteran stories. Two of the largest economic engines in Tucson are Raytheon Missile and Davis-Monthan Air Force Base. Add in the National Guard units stationed at the Tucson International Airport, the National Guard Training Area in Marana, and Fort Huachuca in Sierra Vista, and it's easy to see how much money the military, contractors, and active-duty soldiers and airmen pour into the area. But the economic impact of the military doesn't end when military members leave the armed forces. Veterans are the driving force behind many small businesses. Jim Pipper is the Veterans Business Development Officer for the Federal Small Business Administration in Phoenix. The agency has a number of programs to help veteran-founded businesses get going. What are some of the unique challenges that veterans face in starting small businesses and keeping them going? One of the uh, unique challenges that faces all veterans that are either separating from their tour of duty or retiring. Either way, while you're serving in the military, you're uh, confined to a very close community. You know where everything is, you know what to do, how to get there, what to do when you get there. I mean, it's all pretty mapped out. Well, there's a paradigm shift that occurs when you separate or you retire from the military you suddenly realize there's a whole world out there that you really don't understand. So getting to know who you need to talk to in order to get some help to understand the dynamics of returning to civilian life is uh, quite challenging. Before I worked in Arizona, I worked in Florida and became very familiar with the with the SBA doing loans to help businesses after natural disasters like hurricanes. And that's when we hear a lot about the SBA, at least publicly. Are there specific loans that or assistance programs that are available only to veterans? It sounds like there are. We have a lender advantage program that's available that uh, does provide some uh, benefits to veterans, and uh, it's posted on our website. But the real advantage is to find out exactly how SBA helps. And we have quite a team that's in place. We spent last week uh, doing massive national webinars. I did uh, four of them uh, that we got involved in here in Arizona, where we talked about our resources, our uh, partnerships, and how you can get that assistance before you leave the military. So we uh, integrate with our military bases, our two Air Force bases here and a Marine Corps base in Yuma and our Army base down Sierra Vista. And let's not forget our reserve units that are in place here. And we have one of the finest National Guard units in the country, both Air and Army. Uh, so I integrate with them and let them know that before they're transitioning out, whether they're separating, whether they just served their, their contract uh, and uh, they're done, we try to get them while they're still in uniform. And in 2011, we rolled out a, a program called Boots to Business. We were the second office in the country to do one. Uh, it's a, it's a one-day program where the, the on-base programs are two days. Uh, 
and it's a complete immersion into entrepreneurship with follow-up to help them from various universities that are participating in it, including uh, your host there, uh, U of A. Do you find in all the years working with veterans that the men and women coming out of the armed services tend to gravitate to starting certain types of businesses, or are they spread throughout our economy? They uh, tend to be pretty spread out. Military members in all branches are used to having a diversified background, whether it be law enforcement, whether it be technology, whether it be uh, learning how to uh, protect our land, etc., our home ground. But that diversification enables them to uh, to pick certain fields. Now, I will also tell you that retirees make uh, some of the best business owners. Why? Because they they have spent a long time learning the rules of engagement. And so they tend to, to be able to transition at the age of 42 or 43 into a completely new career path, which can be entrepreneurship. Gosh, that covers everything. I, I appreciate your time with us. Well, I appreciate you asking us. That was Jim Pipper with the Federal Small Business Administration in Phoenix. That was the sound of an F-16 making a pass over the runway at Tucson's Davis-Monthan Air Force Base. Away from the bustle of the runway, rows of the single-seat fighter jets sit quietly in the desert at AMARG, better known as the Boneyard. But the usefulness of those semi-retired jets is far from over. In fact, on a recent morning, a crowd gathered around one of the old jets as it was lifted onto a specially outfitted flatbed for a trip to Wichita State University and the National Institute for Aviation Research, or NIAR. The Air Force is building a digital twin of the F-16. That's Colonel Neil Aurelio, the AMARG commander. AMARG is enabling this to happen. Uh, by providing the hardware, so to speak, to, to make this happen. What exactly is a digital twin of a plane? Dr. Melinda Laubach-Hawk with Wichita State University and NIAR says it's taking the 2D drawings of a plane and moving them into the 3D world. If you watch the movie Iron Man and you see the Jarvis computer and all the images he's throwing around, we're generating the engineering uh, data that could be used to do something like that, to do the visualization that they do in that movie. And that, she says, is a painstaking process. We take the airplane apart piece by piece, so all the fasteners will come out down to the very detail part level, clean the parts up to get off all the paint and sealant, uh, then we scan them using high-fidelity scanners to generate a point cloud, and then we use a 3D CAD modeling software to make a solid model, and then we take all those solid models and reassemble them to the digital air vehicle model. You may be asking yourself why go to all that trouble when the Air Force already has plenty of real aircraft. Colonel Tim Bailey with the F-16 Program Office says there's a very practical reason for making the digital twin. If someone wanted to make some home improvements, let's say they wanted to introduce some new technology into their kitchen, right, and that may cause changes for where the counter space is at or where the wall is at, you know, better than drawing that on paper before you get your sledgehammer out, wouldn't it be better with a computer, you know, to truly optimize how that new piece of technology is going to integrate into your kitchen. 
Um, that's what we're doing with, with this particular fighter airplane. You know, it's a fielded aircraft. It's been in the field, you know, for quite a while. Um, but we, we never stop making improvements you know, to our weapon systems. And so what the digital twin allows us to do is to use more of a computer-based model for any future upgrade work or any major repairs to the aircraft to really design that out to see what will the impact be on how it will fit in the aircraft, the impact on the cooling system for the aircraft, on the power load. It lets us have all those things thought through up front before we actually go out to an aircraft and make those changes. The Air Force has no plans to retire the F-16 anytime soon, and Colonel Bailey says the digital twin program allows the military to catch up with private industry, which is making the planes. This is where industry is at. You know, it, we've gotten to the point where many of our industry partners, they don't work in 2D anymore. They don't work in drawings, paper drawings. They work in three-dimensional models. The changing nature of the industry is what excites people like Wichita State's Dr. Lobbock Hawk because it gives students a chance to work on the cutting edge of technology. We do. Uh, we have an applied learning program at Wichita State where we want students to get things that you don't learn in a classroom. And so we pair them up under close supervision of a very seasoned person and teach them how to do digital engineering. But another thing that we're doing with the students that's pretty revolutionary is we've taken this CAD software package and we've put it down in the hands of junior and senior high school students. So they're getting it in the high school so that they are getting dual credit, college and high school, and then they're coming and working on our programs. So when you see a senior working on our programs, they may have six full years of experience. And then they go out in the industry and they've got a very good foundation. So they're not entering the workforce as entry level anymore. The Air Force took two F-16s out of the boneyard for the Digital Twin Project. But it's not NIAR's first work on 3D modeling for the military. Wichita State also has digital twin projects underway for Black Hawk helicopters and B-1 bombers. You're listening to The Buzz. I'm Christopher Conover. This week is Veterans Day, a time we remember those who have served. Some members of the armed forces join the military as green card holders but end up getting deported for various crimes. This week, Congressman Raul Grijalva and other members of the Congressional Hispanic Caucus sent a letter to the Department of Homeland Security, the Department of Defense, and the Department of Veterans Affairs requesting an update on efforts to help those veterans who were deported. Our producer Megan Myskowski sat down with Dr. Rudy Melson, the president of Consultants for America's Veterans, to talk about the deportation of veterans. Are deportations among military members common in Arizona? Yes, they are, unfortunately. They're common in Arizona. They're common in California. They're common along the southern border states. Unfortunately, as I understand it, the bulk of the demographic of deported veterans are Hispanic uh, individuals or Latino individuals who come from Central and South America because the vast amount of deportations happen to those countries. Uh, the majority of the veterans who are deported, their families uh, wind up bringing them here, and whether they are dreamers or whether they come here through another means uh, for a better life. And their children uh, wind up becoming the veterans who join the service to achieve a better life, let alone have an honorable path towards U.S. citizenship. And then many times, whether it is by way of a disability such as PTSD or another mental health condition that 
is unfortunately acquired as the result of military service, mostly in combat scenarios. Many times the service members will come home during periods of leave or shortly after the conclusion of service, and they still have a contractually stipulated uh, obligation to not commit a certain level of offense and uh, effectively just to not get in trouble. And they wind up coming home as the pride and joy of their hometowns, people that they grew up with in these areas, unfortunately, take them into directions that are less than honorable and integrous. They wind up getting involved in activities that become criminal and hence lead to their deportation. So where are the majority of Arizona's veterans who have been deported? The majority of them are are deported to places like Mexico, El Salvador, Honduras, and Guatemala, but the, the, the majority of them wind up in, in Mexico. You're looking at human beings who have been brought over illegally. They've been brought over by their parents in quest for a better life uh, and wind up living wonderful, productive lives here in the United States and seek to serve their country or the country that has uh, given them an opportunity to have a better life. And they wind up getting in trouble. Uh, and then the place that they're deported to is the place that they were born. And the majority of these veterans are unfortunately becoming housed in detention facilities in Arizona. Uh, there are several detention facilities in Arizona, California, and Texas, and immigration courts that are there as well. The immigration courts actually are in the ICE facilities, will have the courthouses there. And so you have confinement there, and you also have a trial there, uh, and then eventually a deportation from those facilities. For veterans who are deported to a place where maybe they were born, but they don't actually really have much familiarity, what is their experience? It ranges because I think it depends on that veteran's experience to cite a few factors. How strong is that veteran's language? If you're being deported somewhere where uh, you, you know the language, are you conversational in it or is it more so that you understand it, but you're not fluent in, in conversing in it? Many of these veterans, they left when they were just a matter of a few years old. You know, they don't rem- they haven't been back to these countries. They don't know what life is like there. So they may look like someone who is a native. Uh, they may speak the same language. But when they come there, they're discernibly and conspicuously looked at uh, as someone who stands out. So they're not quite sure how to conduct themselves. And going into being deported, uh, many of them fall target to uh, cartels, cartels that look for them at the border when they come over. Cartels have intelligence both in the States and over the border as to recent deportees and what they can bring and how they can serve in the, in the junior ranks of the cartels and how they can grow within those uh, organizations. And they specifically look for veterans because veterans have military training. And so they, they can be part of the armed component of, of the cartel, if you will. Uh, and train more junior people to rise up through the ranks of the cartel. So it it becomes a very scary thing. And I'll just, if you can imagine someone who has uh, PTSD or another combat related or just militarily related uh, mental health condition, and you put them in a country where they don't have friends, maybe don't even have family, they're very lonely. And so that compounds the, the sense of isolation that uh, can only exacerbate their condition. And then most importantly, they don't have health care. The majority of them don't have health care in this new country. So for conditions that are related to military service, which they're not yet service-connected, 
in which they would be able to use the VA's foreign medical program, even as a deported veteran, they could still use that, the FMP, only for disabilities that they're service connected for. They don't even have that. So in the work that I do with them, I'm trying to get them service connected for these conditions so that at least while they're deported, they have access to healthcare at some foundational level, whether they're able to come back to the States eventually or not through application and, and permission from the United States, at least they'll be able to have some baseline access to healthcare. What is the Biden administration doing about this? The Biden administration, and I applaud them greatly for this, they provided a pretty conspicuous announcement that the depart the State Department or the Department of Homeland Security rather and the Department of Veterans Affairs would be partnering up to end this crisis, to end the deportation of veterans, and uh, to repatriate both uh, deported veterans as well as their immediate family members. This is certainly a lingering announcement. With a, I, I can imagine a tremendous amount of logistical hurdles that uh, are in the process of being ironed out. But there's no deadline that I'm aware of. There's just been so far an announcement and certainly a heightened sensitivity uh, from the Department of Homeland Security and the V and the Department of Veterans Affairs in looking at on a case by case basis, especially for those veterans who are very, very ill, who are deported, getting them back into the states so they can get access to health care. Well, I want to thank you again, Rudy, for making time for this. Oh, absolutely. My honor. My, my true honor. Thank you for the opportunity. That was producer Megan Myskowski talking with Dr. Rudy Melson with Consultants for America's Veterans. For one group of Tucsonans, honoring departed soldiers is something they do year-round. The local chapter of the Missing in America Project tries to find word of recently deceased veterans and make sure that these men and women are interred with full military honors. Zach Ziegler attended one of the ceremonies in 2016, we bring you that story from our archives. The sun is starting to peak over the Catalina Mountains in Oro Valley, and Bob Day is at work directing traffic at Adair Funeral Home. This is an easy out here. The parking lot is filling up with motorcycles, not a typical sight for Saturday morning. Many of those showing up are in leather vests and jackets with patches denoting that the wearer is a veteran. Others are in police uniforms from a variety of law enforcement organizations, sheriffs from multiple counties, and police departments from all over southern Arizona. They arrive, shake hands, hug, and are happy to see each other once again. The assembled are called together by Ed Torres, one of the event's organizers. All right, good morning. Torres is the Pima County Coordinator for the Missing in America Project, the organization responsible for today's ceremony. He's speaking with those who have shown up to fill them in on what's about to happen. We're fixing to go into the chapel. Those that want to participate go ahead, can go ahead and go in there. If you don't want to participate, stay out here. Just be mindful that there is a service going on. Part in of there. what Torres and his counterpart, Sean Fund, are doing right now is finding volunteers to carry the cremated remains of veterans many of whom were homeless or impoverished when they passed. Fund is the law enforcement liaison for the group. He helped organize the large showing of officers who will act as guides for the motorcade. He tells the veterans and supporters that have assembled 
they will not forget this day. Believe me when I say that, I still identify with the first time I ever carried cremains and it had a big effect on me. And that's why I'm here. Fund hands out white gloves to those who will volunteer as they head into the funeral home. James Albert Malton, United States Air Force. Each person gets a slip of paper with the name of whom they will carry. Then the chaplain offers a short eulogy and prayer. Every single one of us who served took an oath to defend the Constitution of the United States against all enemies, foreign and domestic. That oath does not come with an expiration date. Bob Day, who was conducting traffic outside, is now doing the same inside, walking people through how to pick up the urn they will carry. The captain will be there, so the first person will walk to there to pick up his cremains. A turn, uh, we've been carrying left over right. There's probably some back and forth between branches of the service where there's right over left. The process begins. The volunteers pick up the brass urns of 30 servicemen and one military spouse and carry them out of the funeral home. The remains are carried down a walkway that is lined with American flags to a special hearse trailer attached to a three-wheeled motorcycle. Once they are loaded, the chaplain offers one more prayer for safe travel. Please have your angels spread their wings of protection and keep us all safe. The flags are rolled up and stacked in the back of Fund's SUV, and organizers go over the route one more time. The, the first Lagnata uh, making a ride all the way up to Tangerine. Which yeah. devolves into a brief debate about citrus. Yeah, you know, Tangerine is a small orange. Yeah. Before an officer gets things back on track. Yeah. What time are you pulling out? No later than nine. Yeah, for about five minutes. And then. They're on their way to the new veteran cemetery in Marana. Hey, all the service flags need to come up this way and line up together. Some people arrive at the ceremony ahead of the procession in order to prep for the arrival. As they prepare, the motorcycles can be heard driving up Luckett Road to the cemetery. The hearse pulls up and each urn is ceremoniously handed to an active duty member of the military branch in which the deceased served. The ceremony begins when planes fly overhead and perform a maneuver known as the missing man formation. Then the chaplain offers an invocation. Our hearts are saddened by the loss of these great warriors who devoted their lives to sustain our freedom. Fund and others from the Missing in America Project speak. I am often humbled by their respect of service, their love of country, and sense of duty. The last roll call is taken, each name is read a final time, and a bell is tolled. U.S. Army, Vietnam. Haring, Robert E., U.S. Army, Vietnam. Then, an Army Honor Guard offers a 21-gun salute and a bugler plays taps. Flags are presented to the families of deceased soldiers who are in attendance. Sir. On behalf of the President of the United States, the United States Army, and a grateful nation, please accept this flag as a symbol of our appreciation for your loved one's honorable and faithful service. Bob Day, who acted as Master of Ceremonies, closes the ceremony. Okay, we are now down to one of the two most important aspects of today. 
the veterans are just about to be picked up again and escorted down to their actual final resting places. The active duty service members pick up the urns and carry them to their individual niche in the columbariums. Once the ashes are in place, the chaplain offers a final eulogy for the fallen. The idea of a memorial is nothing new. In the book of Joshua, we're reminded of the memorial stones that the 12 tribes were asked to carry across the river to remember the Lord parting the ways of the water for them. The ancient Celts used to have a cairn of remembrance. Young warriors would go off to battle and place a small granite stone on a pile. After the battle, they would return and remove a stone. The stones that remained were the warriors that did not return. Then, crews from the cemetery bolt the plaques in place over the niches. As they do so, many of the assembled say their goodbyes to each other and ride off. John Fun says many of those who were just laid to rest were in a situation where, if not for an organization such as Missing in America Project, their remains could have gone unclaimed. There are a few that have been actually recovered from the coroner's office. They had passed on the street. There are others that are in nursing homes who were singles. They had no family. But some of those who were buried had family who chose to wait for their loved one to be interred with full military honors. Fun says that while today's ceremony is about the 31 people being laid to rest, he hopes that it resonates beyond that. I hope at the very least that the younger generation will observe something like this and their parents will reinforce the point of, we owe our veterans for the freedoms every day we don't even think about. But ultimately, the day has carried the slogan of the Missing in America Project. Never forgotten never forgotten and it never will be. Not as long as I and other people are here to recognize them for their service. They will never be forgotten. Zach Ziegler prepared that story for us. And that's the buzz for this week. You can find all our episodes online at azpm.org and subscribe to our show wherever you get your podcasts. Just search for The Buzz Arizona. We're also on the NPR One app. Megan Myskowski produced this week's show. Samantha Larned is our production assistant. Jim Blackwood is our production engineer. Our music is by Enter the Haggis. I'm Christopher Conover. Thanks for listening. Arizona Public Media's original programming is made possible in part by the Community Service Grant from the Corporation for Public Broadcasting.